Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are talking about the dark side of the winter holiday season. It hasn't always been what you imagine. The Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any podcast platform. Now, what makes a good winter story? We have celebrations, we have joy, we have presents, maybe even just forgetting the world all around you and this yuletide bliss. Wait, where are the phantom huntsmen, the fairies, spectral animals, and ghosts? Well, that is the other side of the holiday season, and it is a constant reminder that on this other side, there is evil that is not as far away as we pretend even during the joyous holiday season. Thank you to everyone who came out to the Dark Ozarks live events over the past few weeks. More are coming after the first of the year. Find details for events at paranormalsciencelab.com. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. What are the noir traditions of this time of year? That is a surprisingly wide-ranging list that we don't often partake in these days, except maybe an occasional Christmas Carol TV movie. But that is only a small part of Dark Christmas and Yule lore. What is the grandest theme of, the, of, this, year, of this time of the year, in your opinion? I really have to say it is the wild host or the wild hunt. But So let's start there. As soon as we give a shout out to our great sponsors who help us bring the dark ozarks to everyone we encourage everyone to check out always buying books in joplin missouri in person and online on facebook and their website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs including a large section on the paranormal history and more not to mention the buildings haunted tell bob and elise that we sent you we also want to thank beard engine brewing company in alba missouri Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and twice named Missouri's Best Brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, the building's also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent chefs. Okay, the wild hunt. You know, a lot of people may not really be familiar with the hunt or... Um, where it, where it really comes from, um, although they've probably seen images of it. Quite possibly, or they've been exposed to mm, folkloric elements or descendant uh, lore associated with the wild hunt or the wild host. And so in short, first of all, it is very specifically Northern European folklore. Uh, it is a folkloric motif, so it covers a really, it, it has many facets, but in short, 
it is a chase through the sky led by a mythic figure associated or followed by ghostly and supernatural hunters and the mythic figure in question changes from region to region but is most often odin yes um basically a supernatural being typically all, all powerful with the ability to mete out destiny to mortals basically <laughs> so in short anthony hopkins there you go you know and before we get into you know some of the other kind of modern connotations of of this motif you know one thing that people may not really associate it comes up in westerns it comes up in music you know writers in the sky um to be perfectly honest the motif goes clear back to this uh, it probably wouldn't come as a huge surprise to anyone that as a child and i'm talking ages six to nine my two favorite songs was one ghost riders in the sky by sons of the pioneers and two sink the bismarck by johnny horton yeah that sounds about right <laughs> battle of new orleans and uh comanche the war horse were, were were right in there but Riders in the Sky, of course, it is a great cowboy song, and we recognize it as a mm, really a folkloric motif of the Old West, but it is a retelling of the Wild Host. It, it is, um, and, and if anyone's confused why we're using the Wild Host, it's just basically another word for the Wild Hunt. It is, and it's it's with it's reference to the host of supernatural beings that are following along mm -hmm. as a uh, essentially supernatural hunters. Which, when you say that, is extra creepy. <laughs> it is, especially for those who you know theoretically would view this, um, and it was not just limited to Scandinavia. Um, no. It, it took on connotations throughout Northern Europe and Germanic culture in the British Isles. Um, and it gets, you know, just really interesting. Uh, I think it's really interesting that um, uh, it'd be easy to say that, you know, oh, people just view this as a parable or, uh, you know, a cautionary tale of be good, which, I mean, if you want to, be literal when we talk about Christmas and you know talking about be good or you know Santa Claus isn't going to give you the presents and everything you know it kind of goes back to this idea that there are dangers in, in the winter and uh, things can happen to you but a, a real life example of where people invoked the wild hunt as a omen of bad tidings was uh, put down in the Peterborough Chronicle uh, in 1127, uh, basically uh, giving an account that shortly after basically a very disastrous abbot was named for the monastery, Henry D'Angeli, that um, everyone, you know, men in the area saw the hunt come through. And, um, uh, 
with quite a bit of detail that uh, they were, uh, the huntsmen were black, huge, hideous, road black horses on uh, black he goats and their hounds were jet black with eyes like saucers. Um, it was seen throughout the town and all through the woods around and the knights heard them sounding and winding their horns. Um, so it, it was used not just as a parable, but a, as a sort of a, a omen for real world tidings as well, which I find that interesting. I do too. Something that's particularly interesting to me about the, the Peterborough Chronicle account is that it is written not as a folkloric motif, but as something that's actually being recorded as part of recorded history. Yes, uh, that, um, and I, I think that um, basically um, the idea, and of course, you know, we, when you look at that time period and everything, that, you know, deeds could have very far reaching effects, and um, that basically by making a bad decision, they had brought disaster upon themselves, not only by, you know, maybe mismanagement of the, of the Abbey, but <laughs> perhaps destruction of them all. Um, because this wasn't just something that you would view and view riding across the sky. It could have implications for, for you. You're, they, they could steal your spirit. Uh, there were death omens. Um, it could mark just dire times and as is the case with a lot of these supernatural elements there is a a good and a bad existing simultaneously we've gotten uh first of all things like modern idea of an association with the medieval wild hunt legends associated with the witch's sabbath that it is also a, a death omen, that it is a, uh, an omen for the community, as we referenced with uh, the Peterborough Chronicle. Something that's I remember from a little while back in terms of doing earlier research I found really interesting is that the wild hunt, obviously they're hunter, they're hunting. It's a hunting party. That's a a larger concept there but it is the idea that they're hunting souls and specifically the souls of the dead something that i was deeply interested in this idea it's maybe a little odd but there was a a belief that the souls of the dead would wander mm -hmm. unrequited until the Yule season, at which point the wild hunt would come through and collect the dead. Uh, that's who they were hunting. And they would take them, take the, the, the newly dead with them uh, to the, under, the underworld or the other world. Or there was a, an invitation to join the hunt, which of course we, we hear echoed in the refrains of ghost riders in the sky yes and you know and if to be to be honest then you know you you have you have to see parallel too of 
the the hunt collecting the souls of the dead similar to the ferryman collecting um the dead and taking them to the underworld um there, there is that, that, that there's an accompaniment there there's a escort of, of sorts yes and and within that framework depending upon one's perspective certain aspects of that are not negative no no um um I, I think one thing that we see quite often when we when we are talking with groups that and talk about the subject of the paranormal there seems to be quite a a fear or at least a very unsettled feeling of, of modern people with the idea of the the stuck dead the 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 dead who are on this side and aren't they supposed to do something go somewhere and i think to be honest part of that may be sort of an ancestral um memory of all of these tales that the dead are are escorted somewhere so if they aren't is there something wrong um and and perhaps that is that sort of that primal unsettling feeling that goes up the back of your neck you know or at least for some people with that idea and that brings up this this larger conceptual view of the supernatural of the paranormal in the, these situations in which the more compliant uh, dead would essentially be nice and go on their way and the less uh less compliant less neighborly dead might resist the wild hunt and stick around for mischief or malevolence. That's true. That's true. So we might might freak out a few more people there. <laughs> what what this is really telling us is that post modernity in its attempt to banish Odin and the wild hunt is actually just creating so many problems in the uh, in the in between spaces that uh, it's really time that we reinvoked uh, the host to come and basically clean up our mess for us. That's right. You know, there's you know we're creating a, a state of anxiety in 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 in, in the veil and the void. So so um, that we have dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is this is not the sort of. Uh, nocturnal spookiness that i'm really trying to invoke but there is a, a little bit in the back of my mind that sees the 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 supernatural wild hunt uh, scouring the countryside essentially just like a giant vacuum cleaner hoovering up uh the uh the the unrequited dead who are just sort of wandering around aimlessly going why am i here and they finally come along and say, hey, you know, we'll take you to the other world. It's all good. We'll give you a purpose. We'll show you the way. It's wintertime. You're cold. You're tired. You're confused. Just come with us. Hey, look, we even have a he goat for you to ride on. It's great. <laughs> Although in some versions, you know, what they're riding are demon horses and so forth. So you have to <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it, uh, the, it, there is definitely a, 
an unseely court quality to the wild hunt. Oh yeah, I, I do think that, that there is a, a similarity and perhaps over time one influenced the other and vice versa. I think that's very, very reasonable. And I'm deeply interested. We see this with, uh, we see this with elves. We see this with fairies, that there is a strong conflation between spirits of the dead and the elves, spirits of the dead and the fairies. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's fascinating because again, with our desire to put everything into neat, tidy boxes, we place them in, in in very separate categories. Yeah, we tend to do that. I, I don't know whether, you know, it, it just, that disassociation of things just, um, maybe it just makes it a little easier. I'm not sure. <laughs> and, and it does, it is the sort of, the Christmas elf motif, obviously, mm-hmm. in our minds, uh, the Coca-Cola Santa Claus, the little Christmas elves working away in the in the uh, toy shop, to more modern versions. We have the Keebler elves toiling away to bake cookies. We have uh, Hermie, the dentist elf, on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> This, in its in its modern or postmodern retelling, is far removed from a watchful ancestor spirit who becomes corporeal for better or for worse. And in this case, the elves, maybe alongside the Valkyrie, maybe alongside uh, the Fey, and in many cases with this the this host strongly resembles as i mentioned the unseelie court and for those who are unfamiliar with that the traditional irish view that was documented by wb yates around 1890 implies that there is an up a high a light court and a dark court high court and a low court of the fairies and Mm -hmm. The, both of them can cause considerable trouble for mortals, but the the Seely Court, the High Seely Court, uh, is made of these beautiful, almost angelic beings with great power. Definitely similar to Tolkien's Elven race. Yeah, and uh, though with more shape shifting and uh and uh and issues but the unseely court which is associated with the fomorians uh the the evil underworld evil is a relative term in celtic mythology but they are beings who that are often grotesque they are phantom-like they are regularly very frightening and they are typically associated with death and the celtic gods of death they uh bathe the morrigan and one of i think probably my my personal favorite which is an interesting crossover is the death coach uh the kosh uh and the dalahan 
the headless driver, and certainly the the aspects of the death coach have strong 16th, 17th, and 18th century elements to it. We're not talking about pre-Christian Ireland in the uh, in the Kostovar, but there is a you know it is a, a a spectral night ride it is coming to claim the dead it mm-hmm. is a death omen and it is associated with fate well and again and as you said it does it draws from the hunt and i think uh, if, when you talk about present day just connotations many people have a bit of an aversion to to a hearse even if yes. it's not in a funeral procession um and i think it it goes back to you know thousand years or more of of tales of belief that that dark coach coming to get you you know um that really ties all the way back to the hunt and to the ferryman. And it, I just think it's something that is very primal and deep-seated in our in our psyche as human beings. Definitely is. It, it, it's, it's again, though, those motifs that we recognize. We can yes. recognize them as children. We can recognize them as adults. We don't need... Uh, the the explanatory we don't need subtitles to to understand the imagery of it and even very simplistic at times presentations of it resonate they resonate a lot uh the the is um, represented in darby o'gill and the little people uh much more recently uh in a mid, uh, I'm trying to remember the the season uh, on Supernatural, death arrives in a black vintage Cadillac. Actually, it's dark gray. Dark gray, yeah. Uh, but but it's, it's the same. But it, it it is based on that. Yes. Yeah. It uh, it just has that. Uh, you you know what it is that you're seeing, even if you don't know what it is that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, that just gives you that that ominous feeling and then yeah. you, you mentioned not having to be children to figure it out even the Grimm brothers get get involved in the uh, retellings <laughs> which I do appreciate I, I really do from what we can tell the Wild Hunt was first officially documented in 1835 by Jacob Grimm in association with Germanic traditional Germanic tales and the, there's there is a heavy German element. We see uh, Berta, the Winter Witch, associated with this. That's and something else that I found really really interesting. Uh, first of all, that uh, historian Ronald Hutton noted that there was quote a powerful and well established international scholarly tradition, which argued that the medieval wild hunt legends were an influence on the development of the early modern ideas of the witch's Sabbath. And mm-hmm. I think certainly the flying through air, uh, through the air could certainly be, could be a part of that. The inclusion of the Valkyries and the fairies 
I, I think is really, really interesting, as well as an, an earlier aspect of the hunt, which comes back to Grimm, uh, arguing that the phenomena obviously has pre-Christian origins and that the male figure who appeared in it was a survival of folk beliefs about Odin or Woden, which I don't think is a, uh, a, a huge leap to make, but that sometimes he was replaced by Holda or Berkta. And so you have a male and female, a god and a goddess uh, duality holding these places. And I think that's something that the modern retelling of the wild hunt is often lost. That's true, that, that, that is true. And certainly um, that aspect is not present in Ghost Riders in the Sky. <laughs> no, no. And of course, in, in, as, as the society became more influenced by the church, Odin and many of these other characters simply get replaced with the devil. The devil, um, Herod, uh, Cain, Yes. Uh, so basically anyone that uh, fell on the bad side in the Bible. Uh, right. But, um, but it's interesting, though, that though the church attempted to do that, um, you know, that is not how it was characterized by in the Peterborough Chronicle um, and even the, the first written you know documentation from the Grimm brothers doesn't cast it in that light really true it's, it's certainly there's a a death omen or an omen of sorts that is often associated but something that we see in terms of a, a larger more perhaps more interesting perspective in in these things to me anyway, as, as interpretation, is that things like the wild hunt are oftentimes being observed as simply are. There is a fate element associated, but less of a, mm, the devil's going to get you, and yeah. much more of a, this is a thing. And, and, and it's, it's the way of the world. Mm -hmm. That there's, there, there's elements. And of course, that this way may be terrifying, but it is what it is. And, you know, by, by the same aspect, that there is some order to it and uh, predictability, perhaps. I think that is, is pretty fair in that regard. I like... Uh, something that I, I found really interesting was, perhaps not surprisingly, the Welsh element uh, of this uh, with Gwynep Nudd uh, and the Taulith attack. Uh, the, the, the character uh, of Gwynep Nudd, he is often in Welsh lore, Gwynep Nudd is the, is the Odin or Odin-esque figure. Mm -hmm. uh, the the wild huntsman riding a demon horse hunting souls at night with a pack of white-bodied and red-eared dogs of hell 
I just like saying that uh, because it's cool. But if you reference, and this is this is a to me a very interesting aspect of this. If you reference uh, the Kunanun of the Hounds of Anuin, the certainly a part of it you can't help but make some reference to Kukuvan uh, or Kukulain, um, yeah. the Hound, but and, and the Morrigan, but. There's a great story in the Mabinogian in which uh, Poole, who is our hero, is out hunting and his pack of dogs, and with his pack of dogs, and he's on his horse, and he encounters another pack of dogs that have taken down a stag, and his pack of dogs runs off the other dogs, which is not a good idea to do. But the, uh, the, the other pack of dogs have... They, they shine with a golden sheen and they have red tipped ears that are incredibly notable and beautiful. And that is the only indicator that Poole has ridden into the other world. Mm -hmm. And then the king of the other world, Anivan, comes and uh, challenges Poole. And there's a bit of a face-off but instead of the story of demon hounds and, uh, you know, your collective mm, other underworld darkness, because <laughs> uh, Anuvan is associated with the Horned King, mm -hmm. and this is also associated with Krununos, so we do have that crossover, but, and it is, of course, a big part of Welsh legend. Now, if you were to, oh, I don't know, watch The Black Cauldron uh, when you're <laughs> six and burst into tears halfway through because you were so scared. Not that that would have been me. Uh, <laughs> it, that the Horned King, uh, voiced by John Hurt, is this terrifying demonic figure and I am particularly intrigued by the fact that if you go back to the Mabinogian, the Horned King or Anuvan is an incredibly positive figure who has great shape-shifting magic, uh, has some issues that he needs a little help with, uh, similar to some Arthurian legends, and strikes <laughs> up a bargain with Poole and says, hey, let's trade places for a year. Um, I will use my shape-shifting magic on you. You will look just look and sound exactly like me. Get back to my magnificent kingdom in the other world, not an underworld, but an other world. Uh, rule my kingdom for 12 months. I will turn myself into looking just like you. Um, it, and uh, you know, we'll reconvene in 12 months and see how things are. And lo and behold, it has a happy ending and Poole and Anubin, uh end up being friends well that that's a little different twist than than they took with the arthur legend which you know. <laughs> it's it, it is to me i think it's just it's fun and you know i'm still still a bit scarred by the black cauldron but that's neither here nor there fair i like i like the cornish version of the wild hunt with the uh, devil's dandy dogs 
I, I am fascinated by the devil's dandy dogs. Now tell me, tell me what really jumped out to you about those. Um, I, I, I think for me that, um, because it really incorporates, you know, belief about a demon or the devil thrown in with fairies. And then you have the pack of, of dogs and, um, and I like the twist that the herdsman is saved by kneeling and praying and that that um, saved him from from the pack. And of course, that does that draws on Catholic dogma. And um, but I just find it as, a, as an interesting twist. It is. And. What did you like about it or, or dislike? Maybe I don't know. Oh, certainly nothing, certainly nothing to dislike. I, I find all of it fascinating. I'm very interested in Cornish lore. Uh, we're specifically referencing Cornwall, uh, mm -hmm. the um, southwestern peninsula of modern day England. And when the Anglo Saxons invaded uh, Roman Britain, the uh, essentially, essentially the Welsh, though they wouldn't have been called Welsh at that time, the Celtic, the, the Romanized Celts who were living throughout the south of England were ultimately through, through a series of conflicts were pushed westward into modern day Wales and modern day Cornwall. And mm -hmm. so this is how the languages of the very, the dialects of Welsh as well as the language of Cornish uh, came to be separate from what ultimately developed into English over several hundred years. But both of these areas are associated with mystical happenings. They're associated with the Fae. They are associated with Merlin and uh, a variety of Arthurian legends. And, there's, and they're associated with the Druids. It's, and, and so consequently, any of the um, uh, bits and pieces of lore that I pick up on, on either Welsh, Manx, or, um, uh, or Cornwall, uh, all of it is Cornish is, is vastly interesting to me. What for me really jumped out is again this interesting duality the cornish devil dogs hunt human souls then again um sometimes they seem to prey on witches uh but then there's a scandinavian legend um you know associated with this also there is a connotation with odin and then in some of this it is the elf in some cases it is the elf women or it is the witches who are being haunted by these things. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and you, you have to wonder if the variations came about by different uh, political or um, societal conditions at a particular time. I think, I think that certainly has elements to it. The other thing that it really made me think about is that, for example, many of the mm, many of the many of the things traditional 
particularly wood uh, wildcrafting, uh, plants, herbs, um, use of things like hawthorn, etc. You can look up compendiums that say this is what the witches use, mm -hmm. so beware. And then you look up other things that say these are the these same things are how you keep the witches away. So protect yourself with it. And I find that conflict, that innate conflict to just be vastly interesting. And it speaks to a mindset and a perspective that is very different than ours in the idea that on the answer, on the question of, is it this way or is it that way? The best educated response is to look you square in the eye and say, yes. <laughs> Which is often the answer in these these matters. <laughs> and, and again, a, a, a modern or or postmodern perspective says that doesn't make any sense. But from a from an earlier standpoint, it usually did make sense. Exactly. You saying that from the modern perspective made me made me think uh, that. Uh, it might surprise some people who, um, particularly people who go to certain concerts that the sign of the devil's horns actually comes to play in this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, not invented in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it is not. And the idea that in some parts of Europe, uh, making the, the devil's horns is actually a way to protect yourself from evil and more specifically yeah. protect yourself from the devil. And specifically still considered more, more effective in doing so than making the sign of the cross. <laughs> it, and I, I, I am either delighted or dismayed about the fact that the devil's horns are also called the horns of Cronunos. Yes. I don't think it's a bad thing. You know, it's you know, it's you know, it, it's it's just the terminology that gets changed over time. It is. There's. It was in the Middle uh, Ages that things got screwed up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's that's what they decided. It was actually an appeal to the devil. <laughs> monolithic authoritarianism. So. You know, it is it is one of those things. Of course, many people would be surprised to realize that in actual scripture accounts, um, there is no reference to the devil having horns, uh, or or a pitchfork, or a forked tail, um, or or any of those things. And there there is conflation. Um, from Greco-Roman, as well as yeah, a variety of Northern European uh, religious iconography that associated some of these elements with the devil uh, from the Greco-Roman. Certainly Pan is a big part, mm -hmm. plays, a, plays a very big role. And Kronunos, in, in a, a bit more esoteric circles, Kronunos plays a much larger role. And 
Pan probably gets, uh, you know, the, the, the reference with uh, the ram's horns um, and more of the actual horns. It is, I'm just absolutely spitballing here, but we did have the cult of Mithras, which was heavily associated with bulls and bull horns. And so I think that there might be some causal relationship there. But the reference to Cernunos, I find unique in the fact that Cernunos does not have horns. That's uh, true. Cernunos is a forest god with antlers. And mm -hmm. I would argue that traditionalist people living in Europe would really know the difference between one and the other. I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> I, because um, I'm a huge fan. I'm, I, I, I fanboy about Cernunos and occasionally uh, <laughs> cosplay as Cernunos. So, you know, that that is a thing. But, you know, it's also, you know, when people, uh, the devil's horns have gotten a lot of pop culture reference and everything, but it's also when you think it's no different than um, the uh, the fist of Thor, which was used as a protection and uh, you know a sign against evil as well. So it, it's very similar. And uh, a thousand years ago, people would have known exactly what you were intending. Which to me is strangely comforting in an odd sort of way. I, <laughs> in, in, a, in a continuation just of the wild hunt, you can't help but associate the hunt with the season. The fact mm -hmm. that this is the coldest, the darkest part of the year, we are talking about a time of potentially ferocious winds, of blizzards howling across the land. And to me, there is, it, it's very, it's very frightening. It is very beautiful. It is very thought provoking that if you were to find yourself out in these storms, that would be the time when you would see this ghostly procession. That's true. Perhaps as you're freezing to death. <laughs> right. <laughs> or especially as you're freezing to death. It's uh, mm, pretty much the equivalent of the, uh, you know, the, for, the, for the wild hunt, you freezing to death in the blizzard is the equivalent of the uh, McDonald's fast food window. You're just as they as they roll through and snatch your soul yes <laughs> yeah. uh, but that you know and and along with that is whether it's odin whether it's berta whether it's someone else what we're essentially implying is that there's an ancient god of the dead who's hmm. riding through the night sky exactly and usually associated with dogs and or horses which are both traditionally were associated with death among other things but they both were seen as associated with death or death omens it is and certainly 
the horse shrines of Celtic Europe echo mm-hmm. this. Um, the 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 wearing of animal heads, um, even the Marilud of uh, of Welsh lore at this time of year mm-hmm. strong, has strong associate associate associated connotations and i find that i also find it interesting i can't talk tonight uh i find that you might, you might mention for people who aren't aware we are talking about a, a skeleton horse yes the mar the marlud is a, a a very very old uh welsh tradition during the christmas season a in which a singing skeleton horse <laughs> trick or treats from door to door asking for booze <laughs> I like it. <laughs> uh, I'm very, very, very tempted to do this. Uh, <laughs> there, there's, there's really no, no aspect of the Marilu that I do not find appealing. <laughs> Your, your neighbors might though. <laughs> <laughs> it's either a good way for me to get drunk or get shot, depending on where I go. That's true. <laughs> Proceed with caution. <laughs> <laughs> no tradition like an old tradition. Oh, it's uh, the 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 trick is. Oh, go ahead. The, <laughs> The trick is to enlist several heralds <laughs> with uh, <laughs> with historical notes of explanation. Okay. Preferably for them to canvas the neighborhood several times in the preceding weeks. <laughs> Actually, at this point, those uh, those cute little printed um, door hangers. Uh, I'm probably going to invest in those with a little skeletal horse with the big eyes and say, you know, FYI, the countdown has begun, stuck up in some beer, the skeletal singing horse is coming to a neighborhood near you. I'm not sure how you went down that rabbit hole, but okay. (laughs) My my primary takeaway on this Thanksgiving Eve is I'm really, really smart and I'm not quite right in the head. And you want an argument with that? Not at all. (laughs) Well, since we're talking about tradition, I guess we could talk about old Christmas (laughs) as opposed to new Christmas. I I love Old Christmas. It, for people who don't know, Old Christmas is Epiphany. It is January 6th. If you come from a more Catholic tradition, you will recognize Epiphany. And it is, it is a, a holy day in Christendom that is today forgotten in, mm, largely forgotten in lands that were heavily impacted by the Protestant Reformation, but are still 
remembered and observed in uh, Catholic Christian nations uh, across the world. And uh, it is the it is the day of the, the the evening of the wise men in in Spain, and it has reputed magical qualities. And for example, Spain and Italy. Uh, I love the um, mm, Dia de los Reyes and Magos, the uh, evening that the three kings will visit and leave candy in your shoes in Spain and Portugal. <laughs> the, it, it also, if memory serves- wonder if they were, You wonder if they were drunk and that's why it started by putting it in your shoes. <laughs> the, uh, the shoes were there. <laughs> I, uh, I, I particularly love the, uh, the, the phrasing in Spanish, um, reyes y magos. Um, the magic kings or the kings who are magi. Mm -hmm. And I really, really liked that, uh, uh, the, the verbal imagery that is, is created. Something that is a lot more evocative than uh, the wise men. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that we have with the, the English translation. And it is fair to say that <clears throat> the wise men, um, the, the magi, were, were likely of a Zoroastrian religion from modern day Persia. And of course, Zoroastrianism has some really interesting mythology unto itself and, uh, <laughs> and, and some very powerful um, reading of the signs which of course is included in scripture that I find really beautiful. Then Italy, if memory serves, Befana, the witch, is associated with January 6th as well. Yes, mm -hmm. I, I believe so. Mm. But for those of, you know, wondering why January 6th and why December 25th, it's basically because we changed calendars. Yes, and not everyone got the memo. Well, it, it, it took several hundred years for everyone to catch up. <laughs> and, and so what we, what we have is that January 6th, or Old Christmas. When we say Old Christmas, um, we, we literally do mean Old Christmas. Um, because it was the late 1500s when Pope Gregory Thirteenth changed the calendar to match the solar cycle more closely and in so doing the julian calendar had to be reduced from 376 days to 365 days eliminating 11 full days uh some countries we're looking at you england and scotland <laughs> resisted the change and kept the old calendar for about 200 years and the adoption of the Gregorian calendar did not take place until 1752, which is really kind of crazy when you realize how late in the um, early modern era. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, when you think about it, there were events happening in North America in the English colonies that technically happened under a different calendar. Yes, and what is to me anyway just incredibly fascinating is that from say like the 1580s to the 1750s this is a time when there was an enormous amount of 
colonization, uh, European and specifically English and Scottish settlers mm -hmm. moving into Appalachia, which this is going mm -hmm. to figure predominantly, but yep. moving into Appalachia. And they went into the hills with one calendar and the rest of the world changed while they weren't looking. That's right. And as a result, they still celebrate Old Christmas uh, quite heavily. And old, old Christmas, there, there is, as certainly as noted with um, the arrival of the Magi, uh, the witch Bafana, the Italian witch Bafana, but also a, a lot of unique lore surrounds Old Christmas in North America. And this is tying directly into the Ozarks as well as Appalachia. Many of those uh, Scots-Irish and, and English settlers who ended up in Appalachia and ultimately ended up in the Ozarks would have still been using the Gregorian calendar and they brought with them a surprising amount of lore associated with Old Christmas, with January 6th, that I find really fascinating. And what I also find perhaps unsurprising, but really cool, is that the Appalachian lore is nearly identical to the Ozarkian lore. Yeah, uh, well, of course, I think because a lot of the settlers went to Appalachia and then came straight here then, you know, and so you have a continuity there. It, you do, and <clears throat> things like uh, dumb suppers, the idea of going out to the barnyard and having uh, the animals bow down mm -hmm. in reverence to the nativity. The, those things in particular, there's lore associated with finding green, uh, green growing plants Mm -hmm. out of out of place on on January 6th there's just some really really interesting aspects and then coming back to uh the Mari Lloyd is that mumming yeah uh, the traditional English mummers dances which was like trick-or-treating for grown-ups yeah uh, but not on Halloween, which was quite common and uh, is, is interestingly enough memorialized by Lorena McKinnett's uh, The Mummer's Dance from her Book of Secrets album, which I wouldn't happen to have practically memorized at this point. Uh, <laughs> it was called, an Appalachian tradition was called serenading and mm -hmm. essentially going from house to house, visiting, singing, storytelling, dancing, Guns were often fired. Bonfires were set to ward off evil spirits. This sounds like a lot of other things in European tradition, in European folk tradition. It, well, it does um, from different, for different purposes, different times of the year, et cetera, and even a little bit of continuity with the wild hunt. Very, very true. Uh, and for individuals who are unfamiliar with mumming, uh, you do dress up for that, oftentimes in very grotesque uh, folk masks. Which, which, for the record, also sounds like a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. 
let's see. Uh, let's see. You know, for, for what what <clears throat> here's here is my declaration for the coming new year. If I cannot procure or uh, or I happen to misplace my uh, mm, phantom horse's skull. I'll just find a bunch of corn husks <laughs> and go with a more traditional mumming style. Okay. That wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes my reputation does not precede me. Uh, just I just know you pretty well. <laughs> I know. It's probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Josh keeps everyone around him on his toe, on their toes by sometimes being surprisingly normal. Sort of. Anyway. <laughs> and one of the things, one of the things actually that it, this reminds me a little bit of the Italian tradition. Uh, and in, in this case, it is Irish, but I think it's really beautiful. And it uh, does still have some traditions in the South, in, in the South of, of the United States, but that of simply placing a lighted window, lighted candle in the window on Christmas Eve to welcome Mary and Joseph as they search for a place to have their baby and take shelter. Mm -hmm. You and, do still see that. And I think that's really beautiful. We can also thank old Christmas for things like fruitcake. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm, I will, I will take a season of bulking and I'll just eat my way through all the fruitcake that nobody else wants. There you go. And mincemeat as well. And I love, uh, okay, See, so I like mincemeat myself. I, I love mincemeat, um, love mincemeat pie, uh, traditional mincemeat as well. And uh, for the record, I also love fruitcake. That probably mm -hmm. will not surprise people. <laughs> Now, in again, a lot of these when you when we look at things like the Mari Lloyd, when we look at the the Wild Host or the Wild Hunt, the spectral um, procession, when you look at mumming, obviously there's a there's a strong folklore folkloric concept or folk tradition concept of the European peoples, and you really can't escape the traditions of the fae very true um well and in and just um that's shown in the wild hunt itself that the fae was very prominent um so it goes back a long ways we often i think people now just associate the fae with more modern um fiction and fantasy um but uh, these ideas go back time immemorial, really, in Northern Europe. They do. And there's various aspects. Um, the one that I, I really like landing on, although there, there's some really fascinating components to all of it, is the buttery sprite. Yes. Now... <laughs> I just as a quick aside on the Isle of Wight, uh, this is in a reference to the fact that in some cases, British fairies are very cautionary. Don't go here and do this because the fairies will get you. Exactly. And 
you could say, you know, you could just sort of throw that out there, but in many cases in the folklore, it is wildly specific. <laughs> and some of them are, are better known than, than others. Um, the fae that live in ponds and threaten to drown incautious children. They're associated with pond weed. Um, uh, Lancashire and Cumbria has Ginny green teeth. Yorkshire has the Grindylows. Of course, Hogwarts also has the Grindylows. Um, there's uh, East Anglia has freshwater mermaids, so on and so forth. However, uh, just this short note that <laughs> in the fruit bushes of the Isle of Wight, the gooseberry wife uh, awaits wayward children. She is a huge fairy caterpillar. That's frightening when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually I think that is the most terrifying fae that I have yet encountered <laughs> I, I, that may well be <laughs> <laughs> beware the gooseberry wife and uh, but more specifically the the buttery sprites are protective fae uh, essentially house elves guarding the cellars and the and the butteries the pantries of the larger pantries of various locations. And not only, and this is particularly interesting, not only uh, are the Fae told uh, you know, to, to frighten children, but there's, there's also a, a lot of, of fairy stories being told to frighten the servants. That's, that's true to encourage them to be diligent in their work. <laughs> and then the, the flip side is that um, buttery sprites and other sort of household fae could spoil food and things like that if they were displeased. Yes, and the, the idea, of course, that is that the buttery sprites, they are mm, potentially mischievous, highly protective, non-corporeal entities that haunt but are not exactly ghosts they're inhuman right uh, they never were human but they will haunt the the butteries uh the big food sellers and protect them frighten away thieving servants um, punish the indigent and presumably, they consume cream. Mm -hmm. Which, again, goes back to leaving out milk for Santa Claus. Yes. <laughs> or eggnog, traditionally. Yes. I, I also like the fact that um, storerooms um, in places um, were guarded by bloody bones. I do too. And there is a there's a collected folk tale um, in that does associate a, a form of that story with a, an Ozark's potato seller. 
Yes. And seller is in a uh, pantry basement, not seller is in someone selling potatoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't is, I don't know it in detail, but I've heard it. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. There there's blood involved. There's a lot of blood involved. It's a, a little disconcerting. And um there, there's there's some deep, bloody bones, you know. Yes, there's some, some deep metaphorical or allegorical um, content uh, subtext with it, and involves a uh, 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 it, it really just a, a lot of uh, mm, terrifying archetypal elements. Uh, little girl sent by her parents down into the cellar to collect the potatoes. And there's a mm, figure composed of blood that is forming itself out of the cellar floor. And it has a variety of things to tell her. And no one in the family will believe that she's actually having experience. They think that she's just making up stories. Right. Well, and, and you know, that kind of, that kind of tale has various variations that change, uh, get a little further away from sort of that, you know, uh, storeroom or cellar, et cetera, but still are based on something sort of preying upon someone and then not being believed. Um, but, uh, and some people would say, well, why are we talking about these things when we're talking about Yule and so on and so forth? But the this time of year is the most important time of the year to be able to preserve food traditionally. Uh, so, you know, your, your uh, buttery sprites and your other uh, fay that basically affect your ability to uh, weather the winter um play a part in this because it is the dark time of winter and um staying on the right side of the fae helps helps you survive it does and again from the <clears throat> the larger solar calendar from halloween essentially in modern calendars from halloween to groundhog's day is Mm -hmm. the darkest time of the year. It is literally the darkest time of the year, uh, culminating with uh, the solstice, uh, the winter solstice, uh, the shortest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. And we are dealing with a time in which spectral entities were thought to be at their most powerful. And for, for mortals, we were at our most vulnerable. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and a I lot, think, a lot of, oh, go ahead. No, I, I kind I, of lost my train of thought anyway. <laughs> no, of course. Uh, I, I think just along that line, and there, there's a strong Ozarkian motif to this as well, which is the supernatural black dogs. Yes, um, which I mean, we've kind of alluded to a little bit of the wild hunt that, that they figured there as well, but um, spectral animals, particularly hounds, 
um, tend to be associated with the dark time of the year, the winter, uh, barren times, often omens of death or bad tidings, bad luck. And sometimes headless. Yes, sometimes headless, you know, um, and particularly headless, more of a, definitely a death omen. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, and <clears throat> there's something about the, uh, the black dog lore that is particularly associated with English folk tradition, mm -hmm. more so than Germanic. Uh, and certain more so more so than other areas of of Europe, but mm -hmm. is definitely undoubtedly of of English origin, which really makes me wonder. I'm purely conjecturing here. Really makes me wonder if there wasn't uh, a an Anglo-Saxon base, uh, a, a death god associated with dogs in Anglo-Saxon mythology. And we see, we, we see certain aspects and elements that are in other, you know, are in Celtic and are, are in Germanic. Uh, they are in Norse, they are in Greek with Cerberus, but not to the, mm, just the pervasiveness of the lore that we see specifically in Old English. That's true. That is true. And um, sometimes they're seen more as just, uh, sort of uh, neutral as far as good or bad. Um, they just are an omen of what is to be. Uh, sometimes they are associated with the underworld or the devil. Mm -hmm. I think in more modern times, they tend to be associated as hellhounds, etc. But um, that's certainly... Uh, not universal, and um, in some instances, they're described as part of the Fae. Right, and if if you are describing them as part of the Fae in the Irish tradition, we would be dealing with beings of the unseelie court. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The 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 old English tuka um, or skaka, uh, we get the word shuck, which means mm -hmm. anyway, it means devil or fiend. And uh, the term old shuck or black shuck is synonymous with both uh, the black dog uh, as well at times as the devil. I'm, I'm particularly interested in the, the Manx legend, the Isle of Man uh, of the black dog uh, called the Mahdi Dew and, or the Mothadu. And I just, I just like to say that. Plus, it sounds like <laughs> Scooby Doo, uh, the Muddy Doo, and, and but uh, the black dog uh, haunts deserted places like lanes or fields in the dead of night. Their howls presage the death of anyone unfortunate enough to meet them. Uh, the F Hound of Devon is said to be a spirit of an unbaptized child that rambles through the woods at night making wailing noises like that's not terrifying and it's headless and it is headless just like a good old booger dog from uh, the ozarks yeah uh and 
may have been the inspiration of the ghost dog in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of Baskerville. Quite the pedigree. Really is. Uh, he's definitely AKC registered. <laughs> it's just potentially hard to put the collar on because he doesn't have a head. That, that's true. <laughs> more of a, more of a, uh, a challenge there. It then is, there's the whisk, the whisk hounds. I like the whisk hounds. I'm, I'm a big fan of the, <laughs> the whisk hounds. Um, again, associated with uh, um, Southern Devon. Oh. And, and, and associated with the, with the huntsman as well. Associated with the huntsman, associated with the devil, um, associated with the ghost of Sir Francis Drake. Yes, especially that Drake would drive a black hearse coach on the road between Tavistock and Plymouth at night, drawn by headless horses and accompanied by demons and a pack of headless hounds. There's um, a lot of headlessness. Yes. Um, and then it's also a term for weird sorrow with mysterious causes. Yes. Which mm. I find interesting. I do too. I think that's one of my, my, my big takeaways from tonight's episode for me myself. Mm -hmm. There is something that I can't help as we go over the wish towns, um, you know, the ghostly or haunted hounds of Devon. Something that I can't help but take away from this is layers of complex meaning beyond just ghost. Exactly. That that's that's just part of it, but. Um... Um, not all. I mean, and then this lore, although very British in origin, has really found a home in North America as well. It has. Uh, now, we, we have a, several um, comparatively modern accounts of Black so spectral dogs causing trouble. But the, mm -hmm. the concept of the booger dog, which we, we hopefully will have time, uh, you know, is, is not dissimilar to the Cushy of Scotland, but mm -hmm. definitely has a home in Ozarkian folklore, but is not limited to the Ozarks. And I find that really fascinating. We have uh, uh, a black dog tail from southeastern Massachusetts mm -hmm. um, from the 1970s. Uh, the town of Abingdon being reportedly terrorized by a large black dog. Local firemen saw it attacking horses. Local police unsuccessfully searched for it. Eventually, a police officer sighted the dog walking along train tracks and shot at it, but bullets had no effect on the animal. That's definitely interesting, and, and not that long ago when you think about it. No, um, not, not at all. And then... Um, there's the there's a growing lore of, with long haul truck drivers um, of black dogs with red eyes, seeing them particularly in peripheral vision as a sign of a fatal crash uh, being imminent, and that you should stop and pull off the road. Um, 
and uh, I've you know we've actually had people bring that to us, you know, uh, through Dark Ozarks with those stories. Um, it is it is um, a modern folk lore tale that uh, uh, some truckers take pretty seriously. I so so and now we're now we're moving more into the realm of of individuals actually bringing reports to you, correct? Yeah, yeah. What do you what do you think of that? Um, I I think that um, I, I think a lot you know some of them come across very much as they've had this experience. Um, or you know someone they knew had this experience and they do not associate it with like long-standing folklore or anything um they they just associate with this is what was seen then there was not a dog there um uh, there's also you know tail close to us with the spook light of a black dog being hit by cars repeatedly right but there's no dog and after but there's the, no dog can't find any dog and then you know seeing the same dog you know another point in time and hitting it again it's the same dog mm. and these stories don't seem to be rooted in in the lore of the black hound you know it's not that um believe you know hearing the black hound stories affected the current experiences right right to me that is because i i mean i have these in my notes but i've not talked to someone about mm -hmm. the 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 long haul truck drivers lore right um, they, uh, so i I've, I've known several people who've had those time experiences or related that someone they knew close to them told them a story and then I, th there is one uh, that has been publicized a bit. It's probably, probably 15, 20 years old now that happened out West. Um, I want to say in Utah, I want to say Utah, but I'd have to look and check um, where it happened, um, you know, on a lonely highway, only truck out there and, um, um, seeing a, a, a black dog running along a side the road but it's keeping up with the truck and mm. um finally he um he stops and pulls over because he's beginning to think maybe he's getting so too tired uh, and he's you know hallucinating um only to find out that um there was a major wreck ahead and that if he hadn't stopped he'd probably been in the middle of it mm. And here we have the the dog seen as warnings. Mm -hmm. and, and that's true, even, even in the British tradition, there are times that the spectral hounds or spectral animals were uh, warnings to keep you away from danger as well. And something that seems to be very consistent mm -hmm. is the idea that when an individual sees this animal, there's something in the back of their head that signals this isn't just another animal. 
Right, that there is something to it, that there there is a meaning to it, and to really pay attention to what message is being conveyed. It is, and in the in the time, uh, our, our as as we move forward into December, I, I have a suspicion that our dark Yule lore is in association with the Ozarks as well as with the Ozarks European traditions is going to continue for a couple more episodes because we there's a lot of material to cover that is. is so so easily overlooked because we are largely blinded by commercial Christmas yeah it's the shiny bubble effect <laughs> it well it was so shiny i couldn't help myself uh, but you know then, then i found my my horse skull and it all came into focus <laughs> but but uh i do think that we have time uh just to talk a little bit about the kushi um mm -hmm. the spectral dogs of scotland and this is a to me of particular interest because in so many cases we see the that Scots traditions are also Ozarks traditions. Very true. Very very true. And and in the Cushy for for people who don't know it it's spelled C U and then dash or space and then S I T H in English, it would be pronounced Sith. And in case you were wondering, yes, George Lucas did take the Irish word, the Scottish word for fairy, take off the Scots Gaelic pronunciation, put an American pronunciation on it to arrive at his word for the Dark Jedi, meaning the Sith. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in Scots Gaelic, Gaelic in, in Scotch, in Scottish, it is not pronounced Sith, it is pronounced she, which is nearly identical to the Irish Gaelic she, uh, which is uh, spelled in English S-I-D-H-E. <laughs> so there you go. But uh, specifically, the Cushi was a, a spectral dog found in the mythology of Scotland and Hebrides. The name comes from Scottish Gaelic. Interestingly enough, um, I I may have just I may have to retract something that I said because obviously we do have spectral hounds in Scottish, Welsh, and Irish lore, in addition yeah. to Anglo-Saxon. So there you go. Um, I I may be completely wrong about what I said earlier about it being associated with the Anglo-Saxons. Well, there, there seems to be a, a strong presence of the lore in the British Isles generally. We'll say that. That that is true. And the, now, there I do are find it, I do find it inter interesting that um, uh, it was not known to have a black coat. Right. But a dark green coat coat. Yes. And Kuchi uh, translates to fairy dog. Yes, and um, but then green was traditionally associated with the fairy realm, so um, that's probably why it would be seen that way. Um, and probably in, at night, you'd probably still think it was black anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
the kushi, its eyes are large and have a fiery glow. Its tail is long and curled, and sometimes it was braided. It was said to have paws the size of a man's hand. The beast was said to roam the wild moors and highlands, making its lair in rocky clefts and crevices. Some, some interesting takeaways in terms of that. One, something that we see just as a reference to uh, next week's episode, potentially, of cryptids is mm -hmm. certain cryptids are seem to be noted by having abnormally long tails. Some are, that's true. Not all. <laughs> uh, not Bigfoot, but I, I did think that that was interesting. The mm -hmm. uh, paws the size of a man's hand. There are dogs who have paws the size of a man's hand, but you know, a, a notable takeaway on this is the the immediate recognition that we're dealing with an abnormally large animal. Yes, larger than typical dog is what we're what they're describing, and it it was an omen of death. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that it would appear at the time of death, kind of like the Grim Reaper, um, and that it would that it would take the soul to the fairy realm, or the yeah, which depending upon one's propensity. One might not, especially in uh, Christian Europe, one might not want their soul taken to the fairy realm. Uh, one, one might want their, their body buried in a consecrated graveyard with their soul going to heaven, as opposed to being taken up to the fairy world, fairy realm. So there, there is a, the potentiality of threat, but additionally, if you're... Mm, you know, resistant to the church, you might want your soul taken to the other world by uh, by true. the sheep. So that's, again, that's uh, duality. These I, I find this really interesting. Uh, the hound is said to have hunted silently for its victims, but would sometimes rend the air with three blood curdling yowls that carried for a great distance and even far over the sea. And you would have to try to find a place of safety by the third howl, or you might die of fear. Uh, and there is a strong element of Northern European fate associated with, with this idea. Uh, I find the even far out to sea, the idea that if your fate, for example, if you're being hunted by the Kushi, getting on a ship and sailing away is not going to fix it that's true yeah running running from your problem is not always the answer <laughs> no. rarely rarely is it the answer um <laughs> and he also has the association of uh of bait with women and babies particularly nursing women that they would lock them up because for fear that they would be uh taken to the fairy realm mm -hmm. um where they'd be made to give up their their breast milk to feed the children of the dane she uh or the fairies who are often believed to be the forefathers of the gods and the goddesses of nature mm -hmm. and we do again find this uh this idea 
which I think has a lot of potential value, that the that mortals on the rare, comparatively rare occasions in which they interact with the Fae are at the Fae's mercy. Yes. Yes. It's it's very much like um like the the gin, you know, that you you can make deals with the gin, but you must be very careful because you will get what you ask for. It's you know that there there is a risk when you deal with these other worldly beings. Yes, if you're if you are either brave enough or foolhardy enough to engage. Exactly. That, that there's the, the danger of penalty. And, and I think that, there, that there's a really important takeaway, perhaps conclusion for tonight's episode. The takeaway being of risk and reward. In, in the sense that we, we live in a world in which we're blinded by the idea that everything has a childproof safety cap and insurance covers everything. And <laughs> no matter what, uh, life doesn't actually work that way. And in order to, mm, to, to actually function, uh, to, to seek reward, you know, to mm, succeed, for mm -hmm. lack of a better, better term, is that you have to take genuine risk. And increasingly, it's easy to encounter individuals who have this perspective that somehow they can go through life with all reward and under the correct circumstances have zero risk. I, I, I think it's a, it is a modern um, fairy tale in itself that that people really do seem to, to believe that. And, and interestingly enough, I think that may be the, the real fiction, uh, the real fairy tale. I think there's a great deal of truth contained within our traditional quote unquote fairy tales. We look at these stories of, in, of encounters with the Fae and we might laugh at the foolhardiness of the protagonist, of the mm -hmm. hero. Uh, for daring to tempt fate, to tempt the fairies, to tempt the other world, to uh, that might even seem hubristic on our part, mm -hmm. and yet, I think in a larger in a larger sense, perhaps an allegorical sense of uh, fiction imitating life, there is an interesting story. So many of our focus, you know, the focus that we have on stories, is, and I'm doing an my brain is doing a unique inversion on this because so many, much of uh, you know fairy lore is associated with uh, cautionary tales. Don't go if you're if you're a child, don't go play in the pond and drown because you know right. Jenny Greenleaves is gonna green green teeth is gonna eat you. That kind of to drag you underwater at least, and so on and so forth. So we typically see the fae from a from a standpoint of caution, but what if we invert that for a moment? and look at it in this perhaps allegorical standpoint saying essentially with great risk comes great reward if you are going to live life 
you have to accept that there are dangers, that there are pitfalls, that there are things waiting to trip you up, things waiting to trick you, things waiting to put you in danger. And you can either, you know, stay home and stare out your window the rest of your days, or you can go out <laughs> and engage. Oh, I, I agree. And life is more fulfilling when you do. <laughs> and now, yeah, go ahead. I, I know you, you kind of intimated perhaps ending there. I did want, I do want to just talk very briefly about the patch sheet. Yes. Because it does tie, the, part of this does tie to common lore in the Ozarks. Um, very much so. The, the ghost cat or the fairy cat. Yes. Um, and again, from Scottish lore, and um, often viewed as malevolent, not only just death omen, but benevolent. Um, they are generally all black, sometimes a white spot on their chest, um, and haunt the highlands is where it originated. The, um, again, it's supposed to be big, but close to the size of a large dog. Um, uh, Perhaps the the, uh, the source of Black Panthers. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, but um, then there's theories that they aren't fairies; that they are witches um, and transform can transform between human form and cat form, um, but can only be done nine times. And the ninth transformation into a cat is permanent, which is the uh, source of the old adage that a cat has nine lives. Um, but um, they are considered malevolent uh, creatures or spirits because they were believed to be thieves of souls. Um, that they would pass over the corpse of a body prior to a burial and steal the soul before the gods could claim it. Um, they um, would set up watches for the, to guard the dead um, so that uh, that cannot happen. Um, and, um, but this is also sort of the source of the very common uh, lore of cats stealing the souls of babies yes and a uh, very common belief that you should never let a cat near the cradle of a baby um and it would often be espoused um i mean i've heard this you know uh, my grandmothers and their friends talking you know um and never let a, a cat lick the baby's face for stealing the soul. And looking at it practically, typically what it would be is you would have a baby who'd been nursing, taking a bottle, have milk on its lips, and the cat would lick the milk. Um, <clears throat> but that, I believe, is the source of those tales that are still believed in some parts in the Ozarks of why you should never let a cat near a baby. Yes. And in these, the, the lore associated with the cat, she, 
and the lore associated in, in Scotland and the lore associated with the Booger Cat uh, or the Witch Cat in the Ozarks is nearly identical. It is, and well, and of course, just because a lot of the settlers came from that tradition, so. They did, and the mm, isolation that many of the settlers experienced after having come over meant that those traditions were maintained and survived well into the 20th century, where in other places, the, the culture would have become more diffuse. Right, and, and now some of those, those um, uh, superstitions persist, although now they are in some places divorced from the original lore. Right. And of course, there's just that, that sense of foreboding about having cats around the dead. Exactly. So you don't want cats around the newly born or the dead. And or, you know, and I think in, in the case of the newly born, uh, the, the sense that this is, these are mm, vulnerable, the vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, and now, just as an aside, uh, after all of our mm, mm, witnessing of online arguments about whether or not Black Panthers exist, now I'm just wondering what if all of the accounts is actually just a cat she uh, appearing. And no, Black Panthers don't exist, but spectral witch cats do. <laughs> You're gonna get his hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be hiding behind my horse's skull. <laughs> First you will. <laughs> It'll deflect the hate mail. Oh, well, that being said, perhaps that's a good place to end tonight. And we can pick up more of this Yule lore later in a month. Yes. Um, don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise on, at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. And thank you again to Always Fine Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. On the next episode, we are going to be discussing cryptids and creatures, specifically lore versus science. Catch the Dark Ozarts podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. And thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the dark Ozarks. <laughs>